everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of Way of Light. <clears throat> I've worked at the temple for about the past 10 years now, and I can really attest to the quality of the work that they do. Predominantly, they're working with the plant medicine ayahuasca, working in the Shipibo tradition. They run 12-day ceremonies in which, or 12-day workshops in which they have six ceremonies, uh, working with four different healers, doctors, guardanderos. They work with two to three facilitators, which is kind of like the bridge between the, the, the guests that come down and the Shipibo doctors. Um, they have yoga classes. They work with uh, Shipibo massage people, bone doctors. Um, there's an amazing integration team. Uh, a team that works with people before they come down. So it's really just an amazing environment to to go really deeply into this work. So if you're interested in working with ayahuasca um, on, a, on a really deep and profound level, it's an amazing place to go. Uh, unfortunately, they've been closed since, uh, I believe, March of 2020 due to the pandemic, but they're scheduled to reopen in August of 2021. So if you'd like more information about them, you can check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org. Uh, also, myself and my colleague Marav Artsy are running dietas, which is one of the, the traditional ways to really go deeply and, and learn experientially from these plants, uh, working in the tradition we were trained in, predominantly working with tobacco and trees. Um, we're continuing to run diets. Uh, probably when this comes out, the next one will be in September here in the Sacred Valley of Peru, and then most likely will also be in Egypt in October. Um, and if you'd like more information on that, you can check out my website at uh, nicotianarustica.org and my friend and colleague Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes as well. This episode, I sat down with my friend Will Pai. Uh, Will and I actually met when I first came to the Amazon, uh, probably about 10 years ago or so now. Um, we were in the same workshop together. And right in right away, I kind of knew we had a, a really beautiful connection. We we would sit in uh, in the dining hall often and, and talk and catch up. And I I just found his mind very interesting and very open and intriguing. And we would have some some really lovely conversations. Uh, I was on Will's podcast uh, probably um, a year and a half ago or so now. Uh, he's got a really good podcast. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, so I thought it'd be really beautiful to have him on. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, he's been, since a, a very young age, very interested in spirituality, different uh, paths and practices, working with different plant medicines. And um, at, a, at a certain point, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and that uh, had a very big impact on his life and, and led to a lot of the work he's doing. He's written a couple books. He's a he's a, an author, a speaker, um, podcaster. He, he's done a lot of things, and uh, he, he's a really beautiful human being. And he has a lot to share. Uh, this this podcast, I think, was very deeply philosophical in a way. We we spoke about a lot of subjects, and uh, he has a lot to share. So I think you guys will all get a lot of out out of this episode. Um, as always, if you're able to help to support the podcast, that's a really big help to me. Um, if you're able to support financially, that's a really big help to, to help me to continue to make these podcasts. Uh, even a, a small donation makes a big difference. Patreon is a really good option for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up and subscribe, and it also gives you some really nice added benefits, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. 
so that's a really big help to me, to all of the people who have done that. Thank you very much. I, I deeply appreciate it. Um, there's also the ability to donate via PayPal, and I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. <clears throat> if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube channel, subscribing to the show, um, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos. That's a, a really big benefit with the algorithms. And then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, uh, that's a really big help. It may seem like a small thing, but that really helps with uh, the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. So I think that's it for the introduction. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Will. From the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. All right, great brother. Well, we're live. Well, I guess we're not technically live, but we're we're recording. I guess that's uh... <laughs> Live ish. Well, it's good to see you, man. Um, like I said, thanks for doing this. Thanks for coming on. Um, and just as a precursor, yeah, with, with this podcast, uh, hopefully I'm not leaving anyone out, but, but I think it was pretty much you and, and another friend of mine, Mike from Mike Adelic podcast who, who kind of gave me the, the impetus to, to start this show. I, I was on your show, uh, I guess about a year ago now when, when I was mm. in the jungle during lockdown, and uh, podcasting was something I, I'd been interested in doing for a while, but um, the isolation of the jungle, the lack of uh, internet connectivity, and just my workload uh, pretty much prevented me from doing that. But then with the pandemic, uh, I started. And so a big thanks uh, to that is, is is for you of kind of giving me that inspiration. So, yeah, just a, a precursor. Congratulations for <laughs> making it happen. It's a great title, by the way, Universe Within. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so... I believe we met when I came down to the jungle the first time for a workshop at the Temple the Way of Light. And I believe we were in the same group. Um, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, but that's uh, I think that's the first time we met. And I, I just remember sitting at the, the dining room tables with you, and we had some very interesting, lively, passionate conversations. And uh, and I knew, you know, this guy had something. And um I also found your story very interesting. So maybe, maybe just to start, you can you can talk a little bit about yourself, um, whatever comes to mind, just to give the audience a little bit of background about. Uh, I know it's always a big question, but who is who is Will Pye? <laughs> yeah, right. The process. It's nice to not have a, a bio because often at this point a bio is read, right? And a bio was written, golly knows how long ago, <laughs> uh, and 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 became not quite right pretty soon after that like a day or two um so i like and i'm slightly scared of this prospect of announcing who i am um you know without due preparation now i'm uh i'm a writer that's one thing that i i have done and kind of like to be associated as um i wrote my first book called blessed with a brain tumor that was about my experience of being diagnosed with a brain tumor and uh, looking to create health and um and then i wrote the gratitude prescription uh, after that so I've, I've been passionate about transformation and you know, pr primarily my own um 
for a long time. Um, I've been obsessed with consciousness and truth, the nature of reality for a long time. That's really when my education began was when I left uh, school and university and academia and all that and was able to actually look into what I was interested in and um, find out that there were forms of physics that were really interesting that they weren't talking about at school. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I am have a podcast as well, so I guess I'm a, I'm a podcaster. Um, I'm a speaker. I, I, I love to, to work with groups and, and you know, I lead retreats and um, explore gratitude and, and, and meditation. So when I met you, <clears throat> I thought it was very fascinating because um, I believe at that time, and, and I don't know if that was one of the one of or the impetus for coming down uh, to work with ayahuasca, but we, we were working in an ayahuasca workshop. And, and I believe at that time uh, you had already been uh, or you had known that you had a brain tumor. I, I think you had even probably done an operation at that time. Um, was that, or maybe you were on your way to, I, I can't remember that that would have been 2012. Uh, I think the end of 2012. Yeah. I don't think I've had the, I, I did end up having a, a surgery, but I don't, I don't think I had one then I held out for, for a few years. I was sort of looking to see if it was possible to create a reversal or a stabilization without, you know, sort of in, um, severe interventions like surgery. Um, but yeah, I did have a, a conscious craniotomy in December of 2013. So, um, that's, uh, a pretty extraordinary experience. Mm. Yeah. And I remember it was fascinating kind of talking to you about that because, um, I mean, I think so much of life can be a matter of perspective and, and, and I think a lot of people, when something like that happens, there, there's kind of this, this, this heaviness around it or, or negativity of like, you know, why did this happen to me? But I remember it was very fascinating talking to you and you just had a very positive kind of outlook about it. And you were actually exploring like how this was potentially changing you or opening you in a way. Hmm. Was, was that, was that part of the impetus of why you came down to the temple or was that just the, the, the ayahuasca work was a, a natural progression of, of this uh, interest you've had in, in consciousness? Bit of both. So I'd, I'd already worked with Aya um, previously just from uh, in previous the diagnosis, so just from a, a curiosity. I actually wrote down on a, a piece of paper when I was about 11 or 12. Um, it was like a, a bucket list, uh, though I probably didn't have familiarity with that term at that age. But it was a sort of things I have to do whilst in this body. And again, I probably wouldn't have languaged it quite so um, poetically. Um, on this list, it was quite short. It said, um, swim with dolphins, um, take ayahuasca, and have group sex with um, women from multiple ethnicities. Um, which I, I, I think was, you know, if we look at the progression of civil rights and so on, I, I think there was a really deep uh archetypal impulse in that to, <laughs> to, to bring together all beings but um that's amazing yeah, so you had heard was, of ayahuasca at such a young age right yeah because i had my, my culture was telling me things about substances um and and there was no 
voice of uh, authority or truth. So I had parents and, and teachers telling me things that weren't true, like I knew were not true. Like, where can you get it for that much? You know, wow, that's that's a great deal. <laughs> um, and so I was very curious to find out about the, the, the truth behind these substances and whether they were harmful and um, the, the broader context. And so I started to read um, books on drugs, um, anthropological views, um, pharmacological views. And in, in that, there was um, you know, a fair bit about the, 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 the history of ayahuasca. So far as we knew it at that time, you know, back in the early, early 90s, of course, this is very, um, this is sort of pre-Renaissance, right? This is, this is well, just, just as things were starting to bubble away with you know the I, I don't think the temple of the way of light existed back then um i i went to percy garcia who had appeared on a national geographic national geographic documentary not long before so you know there was the beginning of this sort of coming together of mainstream collective culture and and this this extraordinary pocket of um Amazonian, South American, um, I don't know how to, I don't know what the best shorthand is to describe ayahuasca culture. So there was, there was both an intent to come down and, and, and see if this could contribute to my, to my healing and also just a, a desire to continue with my, my, my journey on this planet. Um, you know, my, philosophy so far as I have one has, has been that everything is about growth um I'm, I'm, I'm here to grow and expand and um so I'm excited by situations or, or circumstances that facilitate that that have that potential for growth and um you know whether whether we look at the facing our mortality element of a uh, potentially terminal condition or, or, or the actual uh, experiencing mortality, experiencing physical death. Um, you know, in, in either instance, it's, it's a, a, a transformative experience. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly been my experience over the last, uh, what are we now? 10 years since I was diagnosed. It's, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a, the impetus and, and the inspiration for massive shifts in uh, in my psychology and my physiology and my um, neurology in various ways and um, in my outer life as well. You know, I wasn't leading retreats prior to the diagnosis. Uh, I hadn't written a book prior to the diagnosis. Um, my familial relationships have, are, are better now than they were prior to the diagnosis um yeah 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 my, my my life has been i'm just sort of actually just like allowing that like yeah yeah my my, my life has changed a <laughs> do you think there because it seems to be i i think uh maybe a common theme but but for many people who are drawn to to this kind of work this 
I think even from a really young age, maybe some deep curiosity, like you were saying about these intangible things of life, what it means to be alive, what is death, uh, kind of this this curiosity about the unknown, about truth. Um, do you think that was something that was just very strong in you? So it was kind of a natural progression when you heard about something like ayahuasca, like, hey, this is this has a potential to answer some of these things I've been looking for. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 I just made the, the very specific connection there. So I, I was most interested as a child. And I'm going to phrase this carefully because it's the sort of thing that could give the the wrong impression. I, I was deeply philosophically intrigued by what my culture told me death was. So I, so I had you know one um, sort of pseudo-Christian culture. I just grew up in the UK. There's not really a religious culture in the UK. Um, certainly relative to the US, we had no religion. In the US, you've got to do God to become president. In the UK, the one thing you can't do is God to become president, prime minister. So I, I was, so I, so I had this, this pseudo-Christian idea of death that, you know, that if you've been a good boy and haven't masturbated, then you get lots of rice when you go to heaven. And if, you, if you've been naughty, you go to hell and you don't get so much rice. It was a sort of, not a very convincing cosmology, it'd be fair to say. And then there was atheistic uh, ontological materialism, essentially, that said there's nothing that, that um, we're just physical bodies that's randomly generated and, and um, that, that, that falls away and, you know, become nothing. And neither were convincing. And the nothingness was probably least convincing. Um, and so that was my meditation as a child was, like, how does something become nothing? How does death happen? Like, what would that... So I was trying to imagine it, right? Like trying to being, 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 being. <laughs> and, and, and being cannot conceive of not being. And I um, sort of struggled with that, I guess. It, it, it just felt like a really um, incomplete narrative. And, and like a lot of things didn't, account for my experience of reality um, and yeah uh, you know, of course our experience with ayahuasca or, or with many phenomena of consciousness would be the anomalies that point to the insufficiency of the classical model or ontological materialism um, so, so yes, there was this lack of nourishment or, or sufficient meaning from the two main driving worldviews or paradigms or, or cultural philosophical constructs. And, of course, you know, the, the, the vine of death. Um, it makes sense that I would be um, most intrigued um, which, which really is, is a little inexplicable. So I, I can say, oh, yeah, I was buying encyclopedias of psychoactive substances and, and so on. Just, just as I was buying anthologies of Western philosophy, I, I wanted to just, or I was reading 
the, the the Bible or the Quran. You're trying to get us get some access to to like be able to what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> some truth, some some insight, and some something that's not completely um, obviously insufficient. Um, but it remains, I think, inexplicable that I thought that going to Peru and, and ingesting this substance that uh, yeah, really I knew nothing about. Um, I don't know what I imagined I was going to get from that, but certainly I thought I was going to get something from it, and, and I thought it was going to be pretty um, profound. And um, yeah, so before any diagnosis, I was. Uh, I, I've worked. I've worked with most most um, well-known um, medicines, and for me, it's in the same way that I've worked with most well-known spiritual traditions. I've, I've practiced Sufism. I've practiced Zen Buddhism. I've practiced Christ mysticism. Um, you know, I've. I've practice scientific study and, and research and uh, it's you know for, for me that just seems very obvious that we that we would you know if you're into food you, you want to try different cuisines from all around the world um, I, I think that's natural and um, yeah my, my I, I love good food but my deeper obsession has always been truth um, It's interesting because your 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 podcast also has that word in it, truth, and it's also something that's that's intrigued me a lot. And um, I, I, I did a podcast uh, with my friend Brian, who's um, he, he's been very immersed in the Shipibo culture. Uh, I think he's been living with Shipibo for the past twenty years. He's married to a Shipibo woman, <clears throat> and um, one of the really fascinating things he said and. And I think it really stuck with me because it, it he he said it to me right after I had finished this very long process of dieting, and uh, he, he was talking about the the linguistics of the Shpibo. and it, he gave this example, and just I've mentioned it a few times in the podcast, but it's always really stuck with me. And uh, like a, a common greeting in Shipibo would be "hakunata," uh, and. Um, and it's often translated as as like good afternoon or good day. <clears throat> the the word nata, which is is day or afternoon, they would uh, the deeper meaning, which is I find fascinating, is it's it means world, but in a deeper level, it means universe. And I think in a deeper level, it's like this ever eternal present moment. And the word hakun, which is like good, on a deeper level, it means truth. And on a deeper level, it means that which is life-giving, that which is in alignment with nature. And so it's just fascinating that this like <laughs> this phrase that is translated as like good day actually means like this ever-eternal present now is truth, 
it's that which gives life. (laughs) And I mean, I just imagine like if if that's how we greeted each other every day, that would be a complete shift of reality. But that word truth, I I find so fascinating. And and I also find it really interesting because in my own journey, that's something that's really resonated is this idea of truth. Like, like what is true? What is real? Also the word reality. But I notice there often tends to be a lot of resistance to that. And and I don't know if that comes from our education or, you know, certain ideologies like postmodernism, but this idea that then in a sense, nothing is true, that, you know, everything is somehow we can make an argument for something. And I can understand that too. Yeah. But it seems like that idea of truth is a very potent and very, I don't necessarily like this word spiritual, but that in a sense, like many, if not all of these spiritual traditions are pointing to this idea of truth, of reality, of, 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 of something that's, that can be experienced. So is that something you can talk about? Like, like, because you've used that word a number of times. So it, it obviously has some resonance for you that, that idea of, of truth. It, it's something that I'd love to talk about and, and something that I can't talk about. Um, <laughs> It, it's the delight, I and mean, I guess this this is the, the joke of you know, being a, a speaker or a facilitator in the space of um, you know, awakening or, or, or truth. Um, I'm grateful for my influence in Zen Buddhist training and a lot of the uh, recognition um, of the, the, the cul-de-sacs and, and, and dangers of um, a thought system and a um, organization as, as, as well when on the on on the path so we have we have we have our safeguards within Buddhist talk within Zen Buddhist teaching um, such as the, the the finger pointing at the moon you know don't don't get caught up in this Zen thing um, it's it's not it um, and the Zen teacher is spoken of as selling water by the river. Um, you know, you, you are pure awareness. Here, come along and experience your pure awareness. Um, um, so there's an, an, an inherent ineffability uh, about truth. Um, you know, that, that which is complete and total, how could anything potentially contain it so we, we can use the word your know, truth or the word god um which will mean very different things for different people of course is it a capital g or a small g is it a capital t or a small t so for me there's a comparative distinction there that god or, or truth as i use it uh, very often will be a capital t and this is the t this is the truth of uh Henry David Thoreau, uh, speaking of the party he attended where there was wine, there was food, but it lacked sincerity. And he, he, and he sort of proclaimed in this glorious speech, as I read it, um, you know, not, not money, not fame, not power, but truth. Give me truth. And Again, kind of inexplicably, I, I, I read this in, in Walden all those years ago, and that lit something inside me. 
I, I, I felt a little less um, alone and a little less odd when I, when I read that. Uh, it was like, oh, wow, okay. So some dude was kind of like me. Um, that's, that's cool. Um, and then again, many years later, I was in a cinema in Wellington, in New Zealand, beautiful part of the world. And I was watching Into the Wild, the extraordinary um, dramatic rendition of this uh, tale of Christopher McCandless, an individual that was so impulsed by an idea of truth by a way of being, a simplicity of life, that he, he was willing to stake his life upon, upon the pursuit of that. And he gave away his college fund to, to charity and uh, gave away his possessions, gave away his family, essentially, to wander off in, in, in pursuit of, of truth, much as Thoreau had done all those years before. And... So I'm watching this film again and again. It's, it's got give me truth and it's etched in the um, in the desk, in the wooden desk. It sort of points to some of the challenge and struggle that's often associated with with with, with truth, realization, or awakening, or whatever. And again, that lit this fire. I remember literally almost running out of the cinema. It was like, it was like, it was very much like a wake up call. It was like, oh yes, yeah, I'm here to you know, really explore, to, to, to find out what's, what's real, what's true. Um, and the brain tumor diagnosis was simply another wake up call of that nature. Um, and intriguingly, before I was diagnosed, um, I, I read this quote. So I've, I've been a bit of a quote junkie my whole life. And this one quote in particular just really landed. Uh, had a, had a, um, um, you know, a physiological response when I read it. It was like, wow, that's, um, that, that, that nails it. And then I wrote, and thus read these words after being discharged from the hospital, having been out there being diagnosed. And the, the quote was very simply, death is certain, it's timing uncertain. So what is important now? Now, I'd, I'd, I'd say, you know, that's probably a good answer to your question. Can you, can you talk about truth? Like, well, there's truth. Death is certain. It's timing uncertain. So what's important now. And, you know, I, I, I similarly am sort of enthralled by this language architecture that would have us remind each other of the presence of God or the presence of the infinite and the eternal right here, right now in our, in our shared presence in this nature that we, that we find ourselves. Um, you know, that, that, that's generally not how our cultures are set up. If, if, if anything, our culture, you know, liberal democracy, whatever, 
what do we call it a liberal democracy? Um, I guess it's sufficiently liberal democracy for us to know that it's not a fucking liberal democracy. <laughs> it reminds um, me of a really good quote I, I just heard talking about quotes. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's this uh, defector from North Korea, this beautiful woman, uh, Yanmi Park, I think is her name. And uh, I mean, it, it really made me think, but she said, uh, if you think you're oppressed, you're not oppressed. Because to truly be oppressed, the oppression is so much that you don't even realize you're oppressed. Right. Yeah. And I guess that there's an inversion there of, 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 of truth being too big to contain uh, or too, too ineffable, too vast to, to, to contain. And if you don't have any... Um, If, if if you don't have access to the spectrum, that's the best way to know to not to, to not have access to to the spectrum. You know, is to con convince someone that freedom doesn't exist or the truth doesn't exist. So we we have, um, you know, one of our sort of um, very strange pursuits of um, people like Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens before he passed was to try and convince um, people in a strangely rabidly zealous way of the incompleteness of a straw man argument that they'd never actually made um, and discounting all the scientific evidence in the process that God is actually great for you. God is actually really good for us neurologically. You know, to, to, to be in appreciation, to be in awe, to be in worship, to be in, um, to be in feelings of safety and security. Um, these things are really, really good for the human psychology and um, neurology and, and sociological function as well. So religion is, religion is, is great. Just because a few crazy guys go off and bomb a uh, abortion clinic or, or, or whatever equivalent it is, the overall effects of religion are as a, a great contribution to um, society and, and individual well-being. Um, so, yeah, for a group of scientists to ignore that, that wealth of data that now you know, neuro theologists such as Andrew Newberg have sort of been busy over the last few decades co correcting um, their um, bigoted uh, ju judgmental view um, it's kind of kind of kind of interesting so again it's that like in, in, in we're saying about the UK and God is, is or religion is uh, a taboo um, whereas in the US atheism is a is, is a taboo. You, you can be, um, a, a, a study suggested you can be um, Muslim, you can be homosexual, you can be all sorts of minorities or, or, or judged groups. And and people would say, yeah, you can still be president of the United States according to how they thought out this survey. But an atheist, no way. You know, you, you, you've got to at least at least pretend to be religious, like you know, Donald Trump. He 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 said he was religious, right? The, the fact that <laughs> the 
fact that there was literally not a shred of plausibility to that statement. Um, obviously, you know, we live in a world where uh, the post-truth world, right, where, um, you know, with a post, post-modernity where, um, yeah, this idea of truth might even be... Um, uh, ridiculed or, or, or looked down upon. Um, you know, which says a lot about the culture of the world that we find ourselves in. You, you, you mentioned this idea of, of, of a lot of these people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchin, maybe in their zealotry, ignoring some of that science. Is that something you can talk about, about what you've, you've seen in the scientific realm? Because I very much agree. And I think it's something that's very fascinating. And, and I think there, there may be some symbiotic relationship that's happening between this plant work and this loss of connection to usually in this plant work, it's referred to as spirit, but in, I think in a greater population, it would be referred to God. And that word has become very dirty. And, and I think many people in, uh, you know, more liberal democracies, big cities, where there's very much kind of this consumeristic mentality, this, this tangible, like everything can be understood by the rational mind that kind of disregards experiences, maybe just because they haven't been experienced, you know, something that's beyond our normal day-to-day functioning, that it's very easy to dismiss that with the rational mind saying, well, well, this isn't true, again, kind of the word of truth, because I haven't experienced, therefore it's not true. But you also mentioned this really interesting idea with this science, and I think it's it's very fascinating, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately is, you know, often I find the people who've pushed that aside or disregarded that idea of God or religion there's very often like a great suffering with those people. Like they're often very unhappy, like very discontent. Um, and then, you know, there's other explanations as to why that is, whether it's the external world or it's various systems, it's potentially keeping them down. And yet, as you mentioned, there's this very, this very tangible thing about often when one begins to to look into that or to discover that, that there also, there, there's a comfort that comes with that. There's a, there's a, there's a sense of purpose or joy that's actually very good for the human being. And so even if we, even if we said, you know, it's all false, but the, the, the end product of that is suffering <laughs> and the belief of something is happiness. And, but we can't prove either one, you know, let's say from that logic, well, wouldn't we want to choose the one that leaves us happy and joy and in a sense of peace and contentment? Absolutely. And the, uh, the, the narrative, the worldview of the, um, Richard Dawkins or, um, so far as I understand it, I, I read the God delusion. So, um, and a few of his other works um, is is extraordinarily bleak, and you know, there's this idea that it's all random biology. Um, it, it's a, it's a depressing um, meaning making, and as you say, we can consider that we have 
choice of narratives, regardless of whether they're true or not. You know, a comparable comparable example would be, yeah, you know, we can say our, the, the glass is half full or it's half empty. In each instance, it's true, right? Absolutely right. Um, and it, it might be true you don't have a million bucks right now or you don't have a a car that you want or, or a partner that you want or you know, it might be true that we're, we're lacking a particular something but it's also true that we're um, in um, receipt, receipt of a huge amount immeasurable unspeakable amounts you know, our, our breath <laughs> for one Right, our awareness. You know, both both of these things are pretty mysterious. Like we know how the respiratory system works, but we still haven't really worked out how we're being breathed and then not being breathed, and and yet still being awareness for a period of time, even when we're supposedly not physically capable of being awareness. So we, we know that you know, consciousness survives physical death. Um, so I, I think that where what we what we find in modern science is um, a, a lot of lazy thinking um, and a, a sort of default worldview which is one of ontological materialism that, that is a belief system that's not recognized to be a belief system it's, it's thought of as being reasonable or rational but it's 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 irrational uh, and um you know, re reason has actually taken us to the limits of reason just as logic has taken us to the limits of of, of logic and so this is an insufficient um narrative it's, it's actually not true to say that there's no evidence for god or, or you know, that there is plenty of evidence for an infinite and eternal being that is present in all things at the core of all phenomena and you can look to the evidence in quantum mechanics as as one or, or systems theory or information theory as one area that really points to um points to something beyond points to something that can't be contained by the um by thought by by, by the mind um it, it's, it's paradoxical um and that can't be absorbed into a system of thought. Hence, we, we sort of just ignore it um, or, 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 or just pretend that it doesn't place consciousness as central to the manifest physical world. Yeah, it's very inconvenient um, it's philosophically challenging, but it's true. If, if we actually you know, are going to really stick to this um, 
scientific method does bring about this um, fact that the observing consciousness determines, is deterministic of what is observed, the intention and what we're seeking to measure and so on. And great scientists, Nobel Prize winners have said that of the 11 or 12 or so main sort of interpretations of quantum mechanics that that swim about, um, for, 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 for some, the observing consciousness is that which collapses the wave function and turns waves or probability into actual physical form. Yet if you go to a leading quantum physicist today and ask them what role consciousness plays in quantum mechanics, they'll um, probably tell you it plays none and and get out of my office, you know. It's like (laughs) you're bringing... Because physicists are aware of what the bleep do we know, right? And no one wants to be caught in another um, documentary where you're just answering a few questions and it turns out that you're featured in this new age, new thought, spiritual talk. Yeah, that's, that's not what most, you know, Fred Allen Wolf and, and, and Anna Goswami are, are the exceptions to the rule of how comfortable quantum physicists are discussing matters of absolute truth. Do you think part of that is... <clears throat> I often think of this, this, you were talking about Zen, this Zen koan of this idea that a knife can cut everything, like all things can potentially be cut by a knife, but the one thing it can't cut is itself. And so in that way of like the mind, like it's, it's almost like a natural pursuit for the mind to, if it can, to pursue that idea of knowing all things, but that this idea of consciousness, the, the, the very nature of the thing itself, how does it know itself? And in that paradoxical way, in, in a sense, like that system of, of observing and observe begins to break down when that duality splits or joins itself into something that's beyond that. Right. And now, um, our, our software, our biological setup is able to experience this. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's one of the gains that's available to, um, to, 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 to have in this life is, is, is realizing God. Um, yeah. Um, and people tend to have a commonality to their reports. Um, although the, the translinguality <laughs> is one of those commonalities. So we could say that the psychedelic experience and the, the divine experience or the the experience of God realization um, 
know, are similarly impossible to to contain in in in, in words. Um, that certainly seems 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 true, but it also seems true that there's a certain you know if you've worked with enough sessions, enough ceremonies, there's, there's, there's a certain amount, as much as it's unique and will vary, you can be pretty confident certain things are going to happen and be seen and be reported and be and be shared. M- much as if you set people up to do eye-gazing, you know, we can put aside DMT and all these extraordinary and exotic and, um, well, exotic and, endogenous and at the same time substances we can put them aside and just say something as simple as eye gazing if you get two human beings one of them might be Palestinian one of them might be Jewish one of them might be Arabic one of them might be uh, Caucasian what, it, those two people together looking into each other's eyes you can predict what will happen and, and people will use words like it's like there's no me and no you or I'm feeling love. You know, I, 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 I just met you, and yet there's this you know, extraordinary feeling of appreciation and then care. So, in some respects, it, it's kind of to, 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 to deny the mystery or to um, try, try and collapse the, 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 the limitless. In, into this little narrative of of matter um, is, is is absurd and, and, and goes against the, our day to day experience and goes against what our um, nervous systems are naturally inclined towards experiencing. You know, we have this this idea. Yeah, so that, you know, we can get into the perhaps the financial benefit of some of these lies. Um, ontological materialism is or, or supports the uh, the scam of, of of healthcare, supports the scam of pharmaceutical medicines, because it sets up this. Um, idea that things are mechanistic and, and, and linear and you can put in uh, a cause that will have a controlled effect but of course we, we, we know that's actually not the case that you if you put something into a, a complex biological system and adjust one part of it in a significant way it will adjust other parts of it in a significant way too and of course, most of them will be undesirable. Um, that, that's, um, that's how healthcare makes people sick, right? And we, we say, oh, they're, they're side effects. It's very clever. It's this wonderful um, sleight of hand, the sleight of linguistic hand, right? So we, we, we can't just say, oh, yes, and they, they, they make you well but they make you sick 110 times as well. We can't say that because that would be bad for business. But what we can say is they're side effects. And somehow that somehow that changes it. Um, 
I don't imagine it actually does when, when you're taking the vaccine and, and you're having a blood clot. I don't imagine it actually helps you much to get, oh, just a side effect. Only happens to one in 10,000. I guess I'm just unlucky. I don't imagine that would be much solace or, or help to have that linguistic insight at that point. Um, So, yeah, we, we, we live in a, a world of lies and falsehood, and there's often um, good reason for those lies and falsehood, and, and, and they are designed to uh, manipulate and control people. And that happens within religion, of course, just as it does within the religion of ontological materialism or, or um, scientism. You know, the, 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 the Scientologist or the... Catholic priest um, first seeks to um, def deflate your spirit. And they'll, they'll tell you you've got something wrong with you, the like original sin, right? Or in Scientology, they'll get you to hold on to these sticks and they'll say, your mother, oh yeah, you've got issues with your mother. Here's, here's the course that we can fix that and so on. So it's the, the very same business model, Scientology and Catholicism, and the very same psychological trick at the core, which is to make people think that they're not enough to make people feel guilty or to feel fear. And, and, and then you present the solution to that fear or to that. So, you know, if you get with Jesus, you'll be good or give us money and you know, sale of indulgences, we'll get you into heaven. Um, you know, the Catholic church has been more open in times gone by with its scam. Um, give us money and we'll get you into heaven. That's that's it, and then you have marketing. Um, you know, sort of repeats these experiments that have been tried and tested throughout the eons through through religion, um, and it will activate your fear and insecurity. So, if you're a middle aged woman, it will show you an ad that has been carefully crafted to speak to the most acute fear and insecurity in middle aged women, which is your husband going off with a young woman. So the ad shows the man and the young woman, and then it shows you the oil of Yule or whatever, $200 cream. You see how women spending thousands of dollars on all this nonsense. And now, and now men spending thousands of dollars on all this nonsense, right? Suddenly someone thought, wait a minute. Why don't we market the shit out of this to men? Why don't we make them feel insecure? We'll get people like David Beckham to, you know, and all of a sudden you've got this concept of the metrosexual and um, men are putting exfoliating cream on and you know, little plastic microbeads going off into the, into the oceans. So, um, yeah, we, we are living in a world of lies and deception. The, the, the matrix is, of course, a beautiful allegory for what it, what it is to, to, to be a human. Um, re remarkably, we can watch films like The Matrix. Remarkably, we, we're being born where we've been born. We can have these conversations and we can do things that you can't do if you're in North Korea. 
I didn't know if we'd get into this. I, I had a sense we would, but it, it's it, it's been <laughs> it's been opened up, and it's it's you know something that's been on my mind a lot, and it, I think probably similar to you, there was always this sense of like something is is a bit off, like. I'm not being told the whole story. And I think that was part of that search of, of, you know, even that, I think one thing that drew me to, to some of these plant medicines like ayahuasca was this premise that it was a direct experience. Like I didn't mm. need a priest. I didn't need a, a media person. It was something that, that I had the opportunity to find myself. There wasn't an intermediary. Um, and it's, it's something, so I think uh, like that sense has always been there, but it, it does seem like we're reaching a point and, you know, I'm sure most traditional or indigenous cultures speak about time and the cyclical way that, that we go through these different periods of, 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 to greater degrees of light, to greater degrees of darkness, mm. but it very much seems like we are. I mean, especially in the last couple of years, especially with the pandemic that's happening, as you said, like very much like a war on reality, a war on truth. And if if things are said enough, then it can be accepted as truth, even though it seems to go against like this deep fundamental sense of this thing isn't true. But if I hear it enough, if I'm sold it enough then I'm willing to throw away these things and I'm willing to, to fight to even, you know, kill potentially these other people. And again, as you said, it happens in religion too. It's the same thing. Uh, you know, someone is so wrong. Their view is so incorrect that, that I have the, the spiritual authority to murder them <clears throat> in the name mm. of, a, of a higher good. And, and very much, uh, I think just seeing social media, seeing the media, you know, there's very much, and, and I find it very fascinating because <clears throat> it also seems to relate to what you were speaking about with this idea of like atheism, <clears throat> when we don't believe in, 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 in God and in, in something that's true, that's something that's, that has a higher sense of morality, then where do we look? Well, we look to media, we look to government, we look to authority who can tell us what that is. But it, it seems like, you know, maybe more, at least in my lifetime, but uh, there, there seems to be this very conscious war on reality where these fundamental things that, that, that people inherently know are true, you know, like there's a difference between a man and a woman, uh, not all things are created equal in the outcome of things. You know, we, we can't say like all, like any practice or any religion is equally good or bad in its outcome. Uh, there are differences in things and, and, and there's a reason. And can we look and find what that reason is? Can we take what's good and can we leave what's bad? Can we question these things? And very much so now in this time of the pandemic, I mean, you know, there's there's literally censorship on there, there, there's a war of if you have this view we have to cut it because it's it's not true and therefore it's dangerous and we are the authority to tell you this and you have to believe us and if you don't we label you we cut you you know and maybe eventually it leads to like throughout history we have the authority to kill you because your view is outside of of what's deemed to be true so 
I think for a lot of people, they, they have a sense of that, <clears throat> but also, as you said, and it's something I see very strongly, which at the root of so many of these things, there's this, there's this deep emotion of fear and fear is such a powerful tool because as you said, it touches on this primordial thing, whether it's something superficial, like the middle-aged woman who's afraid of, of losing her beauty. And so she's buying this cream. It's coming from the sense of fear. Like I'm not enough. Like I, I can't, I don't have the internal ability to control my life. So I have to reach for these external things. I know that's kind of a big question, but, but I guess kind of the essence of that is, is really, you know, as you were saying, there's this, there's this real, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have a better word for it other than like a war on truth, a, a war on reality. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> so can you speak to that? I mean, like, I guess whatever comes up, I don't know if that's a, a very like <laughs> directed question, but. <laughs> I, there's a, a couple of things that come up. One is just two, two examples just to probably support the notion that there is a war on consciousness or a, or, or a war on truth. And, and that's two places where we might imagine uh, open discussion can occur. Um, one is um, TED. So there's this, this, this TED Talks that most people will be aware of, a very, very successful media business. And to have a slogan, it's ideas worth exploring. Now, you might think that spontaneous healing or um, you know, unifying a classical and, and, and um, quantum physics view um, or reviewing our historical analysis with an awareness of our bias and so you might think that all these things would be worthy of exploration but but ted doesn't think they are because ted has a belief system of ontological materialism and nothing that is external to that is permitted to be explored so that you then have uh, credible scientists presenting scientific evidence and they're censored by Ted. So this is, this is uh, um, you know, uh, Rupert Sheldrake um, is probably one, one of the best examples. Um, others that have been censored would be Graham Hancock. Um, I know a friend, Lisa Rankin, somehow has appeared on there four times while still presenting new paradigm information. So there are, there are ways to... To, to, to navigate these these areas. The, the other one that was really just struck me as extraordinary recently. There's a, a not not um, anything of the same scale, but quite well known within spiritual circles podcast called Buddha at the Gas Pump, and they saw people that had appeared on the show previously. Um, saying things like, you know, masks don't work and you shouldn't wear them and, and blah, 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 and, and this is a scam. And this is, so, but expressing views that, that they themselves at Buddha at the Gas Pump dis disagreed with. And Buddha at the Gas Pump did this extraordinary thing of going to that person's episode and putting a warning on it, saying this person has been observed espousing conspiracy theories which may be harmful to believe. Um, you know, viewers should exercise discernment. Now, that's, that's, that's wrong on, on so many levels. It, it, it really embarrasses Buddha at the gas pump quite 
dramatically. It really is horrific. I mean, which media company thinks it's their responsibility to let your viewers know that one of your guests said something once that you don't agree with? Like, <laughs> and, and then to encourage people to have discernment, but then to put a warning on that shows that we don't think people are capable of discernment. They need us to tell them. You know, it's just completely demented. Um, we, we now know, of course, that Facebook is also censoring facts. Um, so one, one fact is that uh, vaccines cause harm. Well, let's see, the, the argument is they cause good as well, and that the good outweighs the harm. That's, that's the argument. But you can't deny that they cause harm. I mean, you really can't. It's just, you're an idiot if you, if you maintain that. You know, vaccines do kill and maim significant numbers of people every year. Billions of dollars are paid out in, in, in compensation. And, and the argument is that that's okay because the benefit is so huge that there's a little bit of you know, sort of collateral damage, as it were. And, you know, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable argument, right? You can, you can, let's have that debate. But on Facebook, you can't, uh, the algorithms apparently will, will spot any phrases like that, including vaccines cause harm. So we have a, we have a situation where a gentleman recently, a friend of a friend, was posting on Facebook how he's having a vaccine and how he's grateful that he's having it. And, um, you know, predictably a few conversations, a few threads flew, uh, fl flowed from that. And, um, That's, that's been removed now because what happened since is, uh, by, by whom, I'm not sure, maybe by his family, and he, he, he died from a blood clot from the vaccine. Um, that's been well documented and reported in major press outlets. Um, I, I have a friend who actually knows the guy, not just as a Facebook friend, but actually knows him. So right now, uh, I know one person who has died from taking a COVID vaccine. I don't know anyone that's had significant respiratory illness over the last 18 months. I know people that know people that say that they've had COVID. I know that PCR tests are um, give huge amounts of false positives. They're not reliable by any stretch of the imagination. You went into lockdown in this country with six we're in this state with six new cases. And then a few days later, it turned out that two of them were false positives. It's like, are you kidding me? You, you just closed down an economy and, and caused all of this suffering and illness and sickness and stress and economic challenge for the country and stuff that ideologically apparently we said we'd never do. on the basis of a couple of people have got a, a respiratory condition. Maybe. We don't actually know because it turns out that our testing mechanism isn't in any way reliable. You know, it is uh, an absurd situation.
a truly absurd situation. So hopefully this pandemic will, will serve to expose the, the, the scam that is pharmaceutical medicine um, that is based upon a philosophical scam of ontological materialism that, that denies, seeks to diminish the power of placebo. You know, um, the power of God as well. Yeah. Medical literature is littered with tales of impossible healings happening. And many of them, the people would attribute them to God. There was a, a great Louis Theroux episode where he was going into this Los Angeles hospital ostensibly to demonstrate how our fear of death causes us to perpetuate life at all costs, often causing great suffering and costing huge amounts of money. And, and this, this guy was admitted whilst he was there, and the neurologist said, yeah, he, he will be a vegetable for the rest of his life, he, he was in a coma. His sister and family were very clear. There was a, an African-American family with a very strong religious beliefs. And they said to the doctor, look, we, we hear you. We understand you've got to say what you've got to say. And we, we give credence to your truth. But it's not true. He is waking up and he's going to be fine. And the TV presenter and everyone's a bit like, oh, how cute, you know, the suffering family, I mean, holding on to faith, holding on to hope. But then something happened. He woke up. And when Louis Theroux expressed surprise to his sister, she was like, I told you. Like, did, did you not hear? I said, he's going to wake up. So, I think, um, I, I hope that all that's unfolding upon the planet right now can give rise to conversations as to how we can have the direct experience of health, of, of, of God, how, how we are, um, um, extraordinarily powerful in our consciousness and that we um, each individual human has a sacredness and uh, uh, an inherent and immeasurable worth um, a, a, a divinity um Yeah, and, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, so maybe that is somehow what will transpire and manifest through, um, through, through this great drama that's unfolding across the planet right now. You mentioned this idea of fear of death and, and kind of going back to that theme that that, that that power is so strong. I mean, the, the things that have been done, <clears throat> done in the name of fear 
or, or, or conquering that or seemingly alleviating that because it's very, it's very rare that usually the remedy is getting to the root of it. It's, it's usually somehow like avoiding it or temporarily making it disappear seemingly. And yet, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's something I think people often forget about is, is, is that, that word for ayahuasca, it means vine of the dead. <laughs> and I think it's something people often kind of overlook, or as you said, oh, well, that's just a cute name, but you know, it's really about mm. rainbows and unicorns and mm. talking to little green men. And, um, but that even in the name is this idea that this plant is taking you into death. And I think many people, when they hear that, they're like, well, why the hell would I want to do that? Like, that's something I want to procrastinate for as long as possible. Yeah. Because that's, that's the end of me. It's, it's scary. Like, right. The mind can't comprehend that. So why, why would I want to, to drink, to, to go to the jungle, which is already kind of scary to people. <laughs> yeah. Sit in the ceremony, listen to these weird songs, purge, purge my, my guts out and potentially have to go into death. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it reminds me of Richard Rudd writing in The Gene Keys. He spoke about, um, he said, if, if you find yourself sort of being a non-duality teacher or whatever, and that's something that I, I've been described as, as I, I lead gatherings, and um, then there's essentially you're, you're selling death. And so don't, don't, don't expect to be <laughs> too popular. Um, a lot of my spiritual teacher friends, they, 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 they seem to be um, teaching how to, how to have better sex or how to get more money. Um, half of them have become cryptocurrency consultants. <laughs> um, and um, that's, that's cool. Like, I, I, fair play for them. Um, and I can see how that would be easier to market. There's, there's a well-known spiritual teacher who um, he, he, he was a young Dutch, or he gives it away, um, non-duality teacher and then my understanding is someone advised him that there's not a lot of money in non-duality law of attraction on the other hand so he, he then sort of evolved his teaching to be this sort of uh, non-dual law of attraction and um, since then it's done 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 very well financially is my understanding um, so yeah good on him um, but there's a um, a, a persistent popularity with this inexplicable, um, undesirable. Uh, and, and what comes to me actually is an answer, like why um, it, it, it is that our spirit, what, what we are, wants to know itself. Tr truth wants to, to know itself. Um, and th there's another response which came up from my experience. I attended, I think it was at the time, the world's first um, the Pasana non-dual inquiry yoga chugung uh, ayahuasca and 5-MeO-DMT <laughs> retreat at a private house in Mexico where on the bay um, UFO sightings are predictable. 
and regular and uh, very intriguing. Um, and I found myself going on this retreat with no reason to go on this retreat. Like I, I, I really felt that I sort of done, I felt like I'd done my healing work with all the medicines that were involved. And um, I didn't have any curiosity about, you know, I knew what 5-MeO-DMT involved and therefore I didn't want to be involved in that. I'd never really felt that intrigued about smoking DMT and then DMT either for whatever reason that curiosity that was there for everything wasn't there for these but I, and I couldn't really afford it at the time either and there was a hundred reasons why not to go and when I arrived I, I said to the facilitator like I, I'm just here because you're a mate really. I don't I don't I don't think I'm going to take any medicine and but then I, 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 I did the first and the second and then we're moving up to the, the Friday night which is the the, 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 the high dose of the 5-MeO-DMT so we sort of we've we've flirted we've danced and now we're going for a, a, an all-in embrace um, and no turning back no half measures and I I suddenly became clear that no one had any idea how much we were actually doing because no one had any idea how strong what we were doing. So everyone was talking about grammage, but if you don't know the volume strength of the, the grammage that you're doing, it's meaningless. You know, if you've got 99% pure 5-MeO-DMT and you're doing a, a, a microgram, that's very different from doing 5% strength. Or purity. So I, in, in that recognition of the, the extent to which we were just you know, playing around with profound ignorance with something that was profoundly powerful, I asked for a sign. I, I said I wanted to have a sign. And I went into my dreams with the intent that a, a sign would come forth. And in the middle of the night, my roommate, wakes me up and uh, he says, Will, Will, guess what just happened in the bathroom? I, I don't know. He said, um, I became you. And the words that came out of my mouth were, my name is Will Pye and the dose is too high. I'm like, oh, suddenly I'm, suddenly I'm paying attention to what he's like. I thought he was just going to go off on some irrelevant, random, but this is really pertinent. And then I went to sleep and had a dream about a spoon, blah, 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 that told me not to go into that ceremony. So I woke up the next day and said, yeah, I've got really clear in my guidance. I'm, I'm not going to be um, participating in the ceremony. I, I couldn't find an answer to that question. Why would we do this? And so the ceremony happened and I was just sitting there and, listening to music, loving things, loving life, uh, feeling great. And, and then suddenly this um, answer came, came into my experience. Like, why would I do this? And it's like, for the, for the joy of it. So it was like, it was like yes, there's no, no great healing need in, in, in this instance. It, it, it's not, 
there's no problems, you know, there's nothing needs fixing. Um, but there is one possible reason, and, that, and, that, and that's to have a, a new experience of, of, of joy. Um, so I went to the, uh, to the facilitator and said, is it still possible? And it was. And uh, I remember he, he put the pipe to my mouth. It was, it was visibly, you know, sort of, wow, that's big. It's, 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 a, it's a lot bigger. It turns out it was the biggest that anyone on the retreat was served. So it goes to show if you really want to set yourself up, um, you know, stand out as unusual in some way. And the facilitator thinks, this guy needs a large dose. <laughs> and, and the experience that unfolded, um, though predominantly ineffable and inherently translingual, and I wasn't there for the, the vast majority of the experience to, to be recounting anything, what also happened was uh, a body gasm. So this, this body having uh, an energetic orgasm um, and, and this is a body that's had seizures, that's had grand mal seizures. So usually unconscious movement of energy through this body is it's not a desirable, uh, pleasant thing. And yet here I am in this ongoing state of bliss. And then this chanting happens coming out of my mouth i'm hearing it much as others are hearing it like wow that's pretty rad that sounds pretty amazing so truth could be a reason we may have the embodied neurochemical, biochemical experience of truth, of, of, of bliss, of, of joy, of, of our own divinity, and our own non-physical nature. You know, some, somehow this physical body was being used by something, someone, to make noises that it was clear had a function and a purpose to bring this body-mind back into some state of familiarity, relocating itself in time and space. Um, yeah, I mean, of, of, course, of course, I could not know that I would have those experiences. But that would be my answer now is why we might work with such medicines. Is they, they give us the direct experience of, of truth. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a priceless thing to experience in a, in a, in a human body. You were saying that, <clears throat> like, 
these seizures or something you, you've experienced, and, and I'm guessing that that comes from the, the, the brain tumor. Is that something you can speak more about, like that, that journey of, of what that's been like to, to, I guess, kind of the initial like diagnosis and, and how like you were able to process that? And then like, is that something that, I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, even coming down to the temple, it was like that there was elements of both, like this natural curiosity, but then this other thing too, that's now very present in your life and very... You know, I would imagine in a way it's like there, there's there's kind of no ignoring it. It's it's like something that that's very, very yeah. much present now. And that's that's something that however you want to look at it, nature, the universe is telling is it's like, hey, there's this thing here now. So and and and, and maybe how that's changed you or, or, or helped you to grow. And um, because I, I think for so many of these things, when when people receive these kind of diagnoses, there's there's often like a shock, a disbelief. I, I mean, I think there's there's even people have written about these stages that people go through. Um, but from your experience, like how yeah. that's, how that's transformed. Yeah, I've written about them. I've, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember quoting Kubler-Ross's model of uh, uh, grief and, and accepting loss and death. It's comparable to encountering one's own mortality or, or a condition that is likely to end one's life. Uh, and by by grace, I had none of that. I, I, I was straight to acceptance, and um, I also I also didn't think it was going to kill me either. Um, I had a just a deep knowing that that wasn't going to be the case. Certainly not in the short term. Um, though there was no reason to, to 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 know that. That was just my my, my clear sense. And the, the 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 quote did something. That, you know, this this reading this quote that I had written down days prior, and then in this really unlikely chain of events, this being the first words that I read post diagnosis, it was it was like a, a tap on the shoulder by 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 God itself, by God herself. It was, um, you know, it, it was part of me knew that this quote was more meaningful than any of the other thousands of quotes that I've loved and that I'm going to write it down in my journal and I'm not going to write anything about it such that there's no nothing clouding it such that I it's, I don't know how easy it is to imagine you know you've just been diagnosed with a terminal condition, at least potentially terminal condition. And you get home as a, as a word lover, a quote lover, a, a, a journaler, and, and your own journal recounts your physiological move or being moved days prior with a, a quote that you could, that could not be more pertinent and relevant if you had trawled through every single quote online in order to find the most relevant and pertinent quote to someone that's just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I hasten to add, just as relevant for everyone who hasn't been diagnosed with a brain tumor. <laughs> Death is certain. Its timing is uncertain. 
so what is important now? That's how we should be living every single day. Um, that's, that's how an intelligent human would live every single day. Um, how, how, how few people live anything like that, actually in that degree of awareness and aliveness. So for me, it was without suffering. It was so clearly a continuation of the journey that I had been on, a continuation of this soul's journey, we could say, and also so clearly an invitation to deepen that journey and a, 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 a means of deepening that journey, a means of answering that question. Um, by yeah, d- doing doing things like the the the, the writing and the um, love and truth party and so on. These things that uh, you know not aren't necessarily uh, money spinners or um, well, they're not. But um, but I have to do. They have they have, they have truth. They have they have value. They have quality. Like for for, for me to have a fulfilled life there are some things that have to to happen um and the seizures were what led me to being aware of the tumor and seizures are a fascinating area of physiological psychological spiritual material and many mystics have had seizures over the years, there's this interesting correlation. The science, the research of people that have had seizures shows that we very often have an inexplicable, deep sense of well-being associated with, it seems, the seizures. Um, So... I had a seizure a few days ago, first one in years, uh, having had a diagnosis of a recurrence. So most likely the two uh, are, are related. And you know, I, I fell to the floor. Actually, no, I, I, I got to the floor knowing that I would otherwise fall to the floor. And I discovered that I, I wasn't in control of my body. I, I couldn't get it to do what I wanted it to do. And it, it wanted to do things... I think my, my arm went up in the air like this. From, so the guy driving past who stopped and called the ambulance, he sees this guy on the floor with his arm. Um, and, I, and I can't do my normal breathing thing where I bring my nervous system to balance and, and, and avoid seizures. Instead, there's this sort of like snoring thing happening, apparently, this, this guy told me. So... It's a shit experience. That's what I'm simply pointing out. There's nothing good about having a seizure. It, it's, you know, end up on the floor, um, get the, the ambulance bill through, um, you know, it's, uh, I can't drive now. You know, it, it's, um, <clears throat> but the way I've explained it to my friend Ryan recently, um, 
that there's, there's, there's something profound in the near seizure experience so that this, this strong energy arises and the mind fears that it's, my mind feared that it was either death or a seizure happening. And, and I learned with practice to surrender to death and or seizure, whatever's about to happen, because clearly I don't get to have choice in either instance. If that's going to happen, that's going to happen. But what I simultaneously learned is that if at the same time I, I breathe into the center of my heart and down into my feet and into the earth, it seems to help the nervous system settle. And you know, maybe, maybe, there's, maybe, maybe there's something about that as, as, as a psychonaut that perhaps you can relate to, that to, to, that to go to those places of immensity or to go to those places of in, intensity and, and to, to come back, um, the, the, there's, there's, there's just profound value in that. Um, and I, I, I don't see death as a failure. Um, we, we have a very strange, or, or indeed is the end. So we have, we have a very strange relationship with, 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 with death. And when we're talking about God, and then it's the same thing with death, right? Our Western culture has got this really fucked up relationship with death, um, Six Feet Under did this wonderful job of shining a light of just how insane we are in our relationship with death. You know, in, in the US, we, we, we put them like a model and make it look like they're not dead. You know, and um, they've had their face blown off. We reconstructed them and it's like, oh, they're lovely. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> their, their head got blown off. You know, but somehow we've decided that it's easier to have this embalming and, and, and modeling process. But what the lead character in that, for me, argues is that we, we need to feel our grief. We, we need to express our pain. Um, and... In my view, the evidence seems very clear that it's not the end. Um, so I'm, I'm deeply intrigued as to what will happen when, when I die, when this body ceases to be. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know what that's going to involve. And that's, that's, it seems to be that's the nature of of this reality, you don't get to, for the vast majority of people, you don't get to have a death experience until you actually have a death experience. But we have many, many people, of course, who have been physically dead and been able to report that they had conversations with people and there was a communication that they had a choice at this point that they could go back or, 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 or not. Um, or, or, or sometimes it's more of, a, of the case that you, you have to go back. You, know, you, you haven't done, your, your, your agreement hasn't been fulfilled yet. Um, so 
in, in, in this sense, I have a I have a deep trust. Um, I'm still um, very much in the process of, of of allowing health, of allowing healing, and allowing this um, brain to be in perfect health and balance, and for any disease to be reversed or stabilized or resolved. Um, and uh, the doctor's predictions from here would not be good in terms of how long I have to uh, to live. Um, so what, what's certainly true, of course, is that I will die. Whether, whether it's 50 years down the track, um, you know, with a best-selling book on how I cured brain cancer um, as part of it, or, you know, keel over tomorrow afternoon or, or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm ready to die in a, in, in a, in a sense. Um, and in, in another sense, not, not at all. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not sure how, how that would be possible. Like, I think, I think at, um, 80 or, or 90, you know, with big family and, and written 50 books and, you know, Maybe at that point, a sort of Houston Smith sort of level of accomplishment and contribution to the world, you might sort of think, okay, yeah, yeah, I, 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 there's not a great deal more I can do. <laughs> so you don't have that sense, but um, I, I don't, I don't have any fear of 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 death, and I, and I think part of those seizure experiences has helped you know, give the experience of, of biochemical, physiological fear and to, to, to lean into that, to, to die to that. So we, it's, I'm sure it's obvious it's sort of the parallels with, with psychonautic um, exploration, right? This is um, another reason we could say to, to work with these medicines is to, is to, practice death to practice dying before we before we die so that we can truly live or right yeah 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 i mean the, there there is another expanding freedom in in the recognition of my mortality and what I mean by that is that the more aware I am of death's imminence the more freedom there is in terms of what to do you know there's really um yeah, that's something I'm still very much in the process of discovering. Um, 
just still answering that question. What what's what's important now? Like, you know, death isn't gonna wait until the end of the podcast. Um though sometimes things like this do happen, right? You know, uh someone says um they're not gonna die until their daughter reaches them and you know, after ten days of travel they show up and and, and the person does pass at that point. Um, so that's fascinating for me to ponder. You know, it's like, okay, so that's one thing to know that I'm going to die. That's true for everyone. Um, it's, I, I don't know when I'm going to die. You know, there, there are outliers on both ends of the of the bell curve, right? Um, so someone's been in my circumstance and is still alive after decades. Others die within a year. So, you know. Um, so, so my situation really isn't that different from anyone else's, apart from occasionally having seizures. I don't have any plans to have any more, so I don't want to make that sound like an intention moving forward. Um, yeah. And there's also, you, you said, are you there, Will? And just, there's, there's this, um, uh, I've, I've had this thing when people die uh, it's not something that's affected me a great deal in life. I, I've not, I've had a, a couple of dogs, a couple of grandparents, but um, no, no close family members, no, um, uh, no, no close friends. Um, actually, that's, that's, that's not true. One close friend, and I, and I kind of, when he died, I was like, my, my love for him increased because it was like, oh, he's teaching me about loss, you know, what, it, what it feels just to, to, to lose someone that you, you love and care about. Um, I, I generally haven't had to experience loss much in this life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not pretty sure where I was going with that, uh, with that train of thought. Um, just simply that on the few occasions when people that I have been energetically connected with have died, I've um, had a sense of them going. I've had a sense of them being in that in-between space and there being some degree to which it's possible to communicate with them. Um, although that communication would be nothing really more than, yeah, all, all good, you know, yeah, or all, all bad, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm no longer there, but I'm, but yeah, I am here. Um, and everything in my experience um, points to the survival of consciousness beyond physical death, and um, yeah. There's some there's a really beautiful clip on the internet of this family talking about how um, 
they were really intrigued when one of the sisters, you know, they talked about when one of us goes, we'll try and send a message back to say, yes, there's an afterlife, to yes, death is not the end. And um, so, well, how will we do that? Well, I'll use a, a red scarlet bird because that's you know, our favorite bird and, and so on. And you can find this footage um, of, uh, of a scarlet bird turning up and, and then um, yeah, red, red scarlet and then, and then not um, flying off when it's given the opportunity to and you know, flying back onto her shoulder and displaying behavior that I, I think any ornithologist, ornithologist would agree is, is extraordinary behavior for a, a wild bird to do. Um, and I had a friend who completed another interesting element to living alive, living a fully alive life and preparing for death is on, on the one hand, do I want to complete everything that I'm here to do, to, to write all the books or, or to sing all the songs or to have all the relationships or whatever? Um, or, or do I want to um, leave some really important things to do so that I can still stay alive? <laughs> So I have a, a guy called Scott Dinsdale as a member of his community. He seemed to be at the peak of human experience. He was in a beautiful relationship with this wonderful global community, a purposeful business, traveling the world. Um, and uh, rock found its way down Mount Kilimanjaro and hit his head of all the places it could have passed. And, and that was it. That was over. And so, you know, maybe that's how it works. We actually complete everything that we're here to do, and then we die. And maybe that's actually how it works. And maybe he and his partner, Chelsea, had an agreement coming into this life of, 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 of that nature. Um, a, a, a friend of mine completed his first ever musical album. And in launching the album, he played a song at one event, which is about the last day alive. And he died the next day. His, his wife was wondering why he was playing that song, because it's not, it's not the hit. Or it's, it's not it's not the one that he usually leads with, and yet he played that, and then he died the next day. And, and for me, that was very clear that part of that was a, a, a soulful communication. Yeah, say this is going to fucking hurt, but don't forget this 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 is all part of the plan. This is you know, it's not a mistake. we stumble in all this upon our concepts of time within uh, Western culture, which is very different in cultures you've immersed yourself in. And we, there's not this linearity or um, um, beginning, middle and end way of thinking about time. 
a lot of our thinking about past lives and so on is built upon this premise of how time works. Um, but if we have a different conception of time, it makes no sense to talk about past lives, you know. Am I existing in another dimension? Of course. Um, yeah. It's very interesting because uh, just yesterday I I got news. I, I was standing in line for a bank, and I it was a kind of a long queue. So I, I took out my phone, and there was this message, and I I opened it, and the first line was something like, "Jason, I have some very bad news. Uh, our friend Patricia was was in an accident, and she died." And it it was very shocking in a way because <laughs> even like in the sentence, like I, I expected some sort of build up to it, <laughs> you know, like she was in an accident and this, this, and this happened. And, you know, maybe somewhere deeper in that paragraph would have been like the, <laughs> she died, but it was just like in this opening line. And which is the nature of, of, of death as we understand it right? as we're talking it, it, it is a it, it's it's not a or is it yeah and it was very yeah. strange and, and and very much like that idea you were speaking of it's uh, you know death is death is imminent death is 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 known this will happen but the timing is unknown and it's very interesting because with, with someone like her, like she was such a joyful person, so full of life, like, like I think so much seemingly on the horizon. And then it, like that, it's, it, it was a, a motor accident, you know, so it was, it was instantaneous. But it's, it's, it's like I could observe in my mind and, and, and I think in everyone in a way there, there's, it got back to this sense of, well, there's always going to be more time. Like, of mm. course, I'll be able to see her again. I'll be able to share with her again. Like, and then all of a sudden that reality sets in of there's no more time in that way. And yet also very interesting because the, the last couple of days, there's been this like very deep sense of peace in a way, like, like a deep sadness a nostalgia, but, but a sense of peace. And also almost this sensation of, of like, she's more present now than, than before. Like, like all of who she is, all of who she was, all of who she is, is still there. And, but, but even in a stronger sense, and it's, uh, it just, it's a very strange time. <laughs> time is very strange. And I think that's a really, because that's something I've, I've, I've often, we, we probably have a similar way of looking at things in, in that regard, but often there's this, there's this sense of, of, as you said, this idea of past lives and, and future lives. Mm. And yet very much, as you said, it's, it's still in this linear idea of time. And even when I was very young and, and I was kind of pondering that, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it was kind of like that analogy of, of uh, 
<laughs> some someone asks uh, this this teacher like uh, well, well well you know what's holding up the world or no the the teacher asks you know what's holding up the world and this woman uh, raises her hand and she says a giant tortoise that's what's holding up the world and and he says ah, okay but what's underneath that tortoise and she goes well it's just tortoises all the way down. <laughs> But with that idea of past lives, that was always like something that was very, even from a young age, it was like, well, I see that. I can see how there can even be comfort. We were speaking about that in that way, because it seemingly like answers that question. Well, well, if I die or where was I before? Well, it was a past life or there's a future life. And yet that seemingly doesn't get to the root of, well, what is life? It seems like just another layer or even this idea, you know, often things we don't know or understand, we, we may, there's like this common idea of like, where do humans come from? And like, there's a very strong theory and, and it, it could be very, very probable. It's definitely plausible, but even very probable that, you know, it was like, it was alien life that, that came and, and then it's like, okay, well, now I know, now I have an answer. It was alien life. <laughs> but where did they come from? Where was, where was the essence of their life? And it seems like so many of these things are just these kind of infinite thought patterns that seemingly give us comfort, but they don't necessarily get to the root of the very question we're, we're looking at. It also reminds me of something very fascinating. Often where I work and where you've been at the temple, we often... Uh, ask people, why are you here? And it's a seemingly very simple question, not in some existential sense, like, why are you here at the temple? What are you, what are you looking to, to, to do? I asked and a I, guest at a, at a meditation gathering um, recently, what brings you here? And her response was, um, my guides told me to come <laughs> because your guides told my guides to get me here. I was like, <laughs> Okay. Can't wait to hear what what you have to share. There's this very interesting phenomena which I've I've seen, which is it's very easy for people to point out why they're here or there in a negative sense, and and not in a sense of like an emotionally negative sense, but but in in the negation of something. Like I, I'm not I, here because of this, or. Yeah, or, or something like, like, I want the suffering to end. You know, I have this crippling anxiety and I want that to end. Or I have this trauma and, and I want to be free of that. But it's very fascinating because upon deeper inquiry, if you really ask the person, like, well, but why do you want that to end? Like, what is it that you're actually looking for? it's often very difficult for us to, to say like, well, what is it that I'm actually looking for? Like, what is at the root? Because what if that went away and my life was worse? I mean, that's a, that's a probability. So it's, it's not the thing itself that we're really wanting that to go away because we have no idea. We think we know what's on the other side of that, but it's very difficult for people to name that. And often at the root, there's some idea of like the sense of, of freedom or of peace, of, of connection, of 
of oneness. And, and it's also where it gets tricky because it's very difficult to put that into words. But I guess all of this of what I'm speaking about is, is kind of this idea that you were talking about, like this nature of time and that so many of us look at it in a very linear sense. And so when you mention this idea of past lives, like that seems to be a logical conclusion if time is linear well then i i had a life before and i have a life after and it's also very fascinating because almost always that life before was you know <laughs> i was the king of egypt or uh, you know <laughs> it's usually quite special it's, it, it's very rarely like well i was uh, you know the plumber or something but can yeah, you speak I, to that idea of, of time and because it, you know i think what you're pointing towards is is very very invaluable and and to what you were speaking about earlier like this sense of like what do i do now like how because all of that in a sense like that that can die away at at any second and it you know so but what like what in this moment is actually life yeah right uh wittgenstein austrian german philosopher and linguist spoke of the limits of our language being the limits of our world. Um, Zen master Jumpo Dennis Kelly Roshi recently passed actually um, spoke about if, if you can't describe it, it didn't happen. So he is big on a telling people why we're meditating, like meditation, why bother? Um, yeah, providing the philosophical understanding of what has brought us to here and, and why we're going to sit down and not move and observe our breath for, for a while. Um, and then also when an enlightenment experience happens or when a shift happens, being able to articulate that having some language to describe this new territory. Um, and so the experience can be incorporated into the, into the psychology, into the, um, uh, yeah, in, in, into, into the person's self-understanding. That can be really problematic, of course. Um, including when we bring in different languages. So in, in, in Buddhism, we have uh, my my Dharma name is uh, Ku, which is Japanese for Shunyata, or um, yeah, which is the Sanskrit word for or that gets translated as emptiness. And emptiness is a negation, right? It, it's it's a lack of something. It's a no thing. And in our culture, in, in Western culture, the zero or the nothing is seen as less than. The the absence of is is, is seen as less than. And which is a curious bias, but it does seem, it does seem to be there and, and maybe it's our fear of death and maybe it's our fear of nothingness as a non-existence um 
And that word, emptiness, is really problematic to describe the enlightenment experience or, or the, 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 the falling away of a personal self, the falling away of a, of a, of a self-referencing um, narrative um, or the, the arising of, 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 a, of a deep peace. Um, you know, there, there, there are different ways that we can articulate attempt to express all that. Uh, Jumpo Dennis Kelly, uh, he would speak about clear, deep heart mind. That place, clear, deep heart mind. And um, we are already clear, deep heart mind. And, and yet, we may have the experience of becoming clear, deep heart mind, of realizing that we are clear, deep heart mind. Um, and so in, in, in Zen, there's two main dominant schools. One says we sit in order to become enlightened. The other says we sit in order to enjoy our enlightenment in order to enjoy our experience of, of, of being pure awareness. And uh, time seems to be even more problematic, even more foundational in shaping our view of the world. So, so long as we are in language, that language is going to be limited language is limiting it, it's both creative and limiting you know in christian texts and in vedic texts we hear in the beginning was the word right oh that's like vibrational thing out of out of the void, out of the no thing came this primordial vibrational hum that ultimately is manifesting now as you and as I and as all of this um, world of apparent form that, that we know, by the way, is empty. <laughs> so. So we, we know from our scientific inquiry that what looks solid is, is actually not. That's, that's a, a trick of the brain. The brain makes it appear solid. Um, and the brain doesn't also have any distinction between whether we're imagining it or directly experiencing it. which is kind of interesting. We ponder, um, pon ponder that.
Yeah, so it seems that uh, time is really how how we conceive of time is is profoundly causative in terms of determining our experience and indeed determining our neurological functioning. Now this is this is where it gets kind of fascinating from a, a chicken or egg scenario. Does my contemplating the present moment cause my neurology to adjust into a more harmonic whole brain communication or less default mode network activity or or or, or vice versa does the, the fact of this present moment just give rise to the um or, or, or does the, the fact of my neurology give rise to the direct experience of the present moment? And there's a form of communication that occurs uh, that's, that's non-verbal. Um, as, as an internally sourced information gathering, that would be called intuition, right? We, we just know something. We just know not to go down that alleyway or, or to go down that alleyway or to... We just have, we just have a knowing. And when that's happening between two people, we call it telepathy. Um, or when it's happening between one person and another location, we call it remote viewing. Um, so all, all of these things point to oneness. They, they point to um, what um, John Wheeler, the uh, Feynman, Feynman's teacher, physicist, spoke about the single electron thought experiment. So his notion was, you're looking at the data, there's nothing to rule out the reality that there's just one electron. Experiencing itself superimposed, multi-imposed, multi-dimensional, um, which is, of course, another creation story. It sounds a bit like God, right? Um, but it's a, you know, from a from a physicist. Why does the electron superimpose itself? Why does something become? Why does nothing become something? Why, why, why did the indivisible, infinite and eternal no thing become something? Was God lonely? Was God wanting to become something more than it already was?
truly to to be alive and to have such thoughts to ponder such ponderables is um is is, is such a such a, an exquisite gift um and, and and maybe here is the you know what's important now is to to do that that we find most joyful to do that which we find most meaningful um, to 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 give our time to that which is most uh, most delightful. For me, that looks like um, a, lot of, a lot of time doing nothing. I, I, I love walking in nature. And, um, yeah, that feels rich and significant and, and precious. And if this is the last moment, yeah, I'd, I'd love it to be uh, to be enjoying pine trees or experiencing sun on my on my skin or you know, the sound of a lyrebird. Um, you know, th th there's obviously a, a mentality in Western culture that no, I should be uh, accruing more money or, or um, getting more done. Or, um, or, or seeing more nature, you know, like take off everything on my on, on my list, see, see everything around the the, the world. Um, yeah, but none of that is is alive for me as being um, particularly important. You spoke about this very interesting idea, and it reminded me, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Stephen Harold Buner, I think is his name. He <clears throat> He's written a number of books. Um, he's, a, I guess you would call him an herbalist by, by training. And he, he wrote a very beautiful book, and it was called, uh, I believe it was called Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm. And it's a very big book. Uh, it, it's... I don't know how many pages it is, but it's quite thick. And I remember reading it and it was very interesting because the, I would say like the first half of the book, I found myself kind of struggling to get through it. It just, it, it was, it, it, it was very nonlinear also. And, and I think that's, that's a bit his, his way of, of writing. It was just seemingly very random 
And at some point I, I remember thinking like, why am I reading this? Like, I don't seem to be absorbing anything. And yet something I kept, I kept going. And then at some point, maybe around halfway through, it felt like something began to come through mm. and very much in this way of, of like a non-direct teaching. It wasn't so much inherently what he was saying, but there was something behind that that was being mm. spoken about or, or taught. And one of his, one of his big things that he kept pointing to was this idea of like the imaginal realm. And so when you were speaking about this idea between like the brain doesn't under, the brain can't necessarily differentiate between what is experienced in, in this reality with the five senses versus something that can be imagined. And I think for a lot of people that that may seem very confusing, but really common examples. Like if, if we're in the water and we think there may be sharks, like most people experience like this, this very visceral reaction, this fear, sweaty palms. And yet there's no real danger. There's, there's nothing that's actually yeah. affecting them right now. And yet all of those neurons and neural pathways and sense perceptions are, are fired. And Often with a lot of this plant work, uh, it seems like even uh, like as they begin to map the brain a little bit, uh, something that, that I read, which was very fascinating. And at first it didn't make sense and, until I thought more about it. But they were saying when they when they were mapping the brains of people who were taking ayahuasca or, or psilocybin, that everything was lit up. You know, and there's often this idea, like we're only using a certain amount of our brain. And, and when they were on these substances, like everything was lit up. And yet they said things were working much slower. And at first that seemed a little paradoxical to me. Well, if everything is, is lit up, it, it must be that things are working faster. And yet they said it was slowing down. And by slowing down, everything became lit up. And very much like this idea of you were talking about, it's, it's like there's often this desire to do more because if we do more, then we'll receive more. And yet this idea of, of just being in nature, doing nothing, actually something is actually opened up. More of our brain is being activated. And they said the closest thing that it could resemble was that of a child. And it's very interesting because I, I had an interview recently with my friend Diana and, and she was saying she, she's a mother now of a young child. And she was saying for this child, like the, the difference between <laughs> her reality, Diana's reality and the child's reality is very different. Like the mm -hmm. child has breakfast with unicorns and she talks to giraffes. And for her, like that space is is much less defined than than most of our our space. Like most of us, it's what is real is that which we can touch, we can experience. And yet, going back to this idea of, of Stephen Harold Buner and, and plant medicines, it's like this imaginal realm is extremely real. 
and and I think more in this kind of uh, generic shamanic sense, it's like that's where a lot of the power lies is in the dream space, in the unconscious, in, in the world that we don't have access to here and now. In the world of form, as you were saying, there's something empty, there's something, and that emptiness is is far more vast, far greater like the 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 atoms you know they're they're few and far between they're they're real but the emptiness is is far more vast than that and so like in that way the imaginal realm has this maybe infinite possibility and that that's where this power of, of shamans or people who can tap into that it's like they can bring this 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 space that most of us, whether we've we've forgotten the access to it or for whatever reason we've become removed from it, that imaginal realm has this tremendous power, this tremendous beauty. So again, I don't know if there's a question there, but <laughs> but just well, the, this okay. idea again of like the the the, the reality versus, as you said, like the brain being not necessarily being able to perceive the difference between reality and that imaginal realm and where all this potential healing or benefit or expansion can come from if we can if we can access that yeah right um there's there's a couple of things that came up as you were speaking one was this this wonderful world word imaginal and I, i've heard that used with regards the um butterfly that in the process of metamorphosis, in the process of um, destruction, so you know, it wraps itself up in this cocoon and, and then dissolves itself in its own acidic stomach juices. I, I think that's fairly close to accurate, I think. And in that moment of destruction, in that moment of death, there's an imaginal cell that knows butterfly that knows what it is to be a butterfly they've actually identified that's not a hypothesis there is an there is a cell there that's function and role is to remember or, or to now embody to now biologically express butterfly um similarly uh, an acorn somehow has encoded into it what it is to become a tree what it is to become an oak and Rupert Sheldrake offered us this wonderful hypothesis of morphogenetic fields as being the mechanism by which there's this crossover between the unconscious and the conscious or the formless and the, the form. And what also came up was that we, rather extraordinarily, with our knowledge now of neuroplasticity, if we assume that the brain is at least the seat of consciousness or the, or the receiver of consciousness, if not the creator or cause of consciousness, if we can put aside that childish notion, then the fact that within this neurology, I can imagine a different neurology and then that neurology come into form and that could be a specific imagining. It could, it could be visualizing my left and right brain communicating, or it could be um, 
just doing lots of spatial stuff and my hippocampus will, 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 will grow uh, or just lots of meditation. And we don't know why that my, my um, protective casing of the brain will, will, will increase by half a millimeter. Um, we don't know if that's a good thing or, a, or but we, we assume it probably is because these people have been doing lots of meditation and we, we probably ascribe value to that as being a positive, but who knows, it might be making them more dense. Um, so there's really, really something quite at the heart of this experience we're having in the physical world. We, we, we see it in the butterflies. We see it in our own capacity to grow and evolve, which, as Gandhi said, is actually the great discovery of the atomic age, is that we can recreate ourselves. And Joe Dispenza is a teacher of our modern times who's doing a great job of showing how you can recreate yourself, how you can change the habit of being yourself, I think is one of the titles of his books. And he talks about a process where he was on the verge of paralysis and all the experts told him he needed to have uh, severe surgery in order to prevent paralysis or you know, to, to, in order to live. And he, he decided, felt, intuited that he could use his imagination to reform his spine. And he describes that process in such a way that he was kind of like you were with the book, not, not really connected. Like, you, you know you're reading it. You, you know, I've, I've just read that chapter or I've read half a chapter, half a book or whatever. But you're not, you're not really, you're not really in it. You're not really gelling. It's like you can be spending time with someone, but if you're not really connected, if you're not getting on, it feels like you're not really with them, even though you sort of physically are. And he spoke about reaching a point after several months of several hours a day of this meditating and imagining where it felt true, where, where it resonated, where it was done. So he, he, he could now hold that image that, that was part of his reality. His, his brain had now accepted that reality. And, and then in, in his model, I understand he would say his, his, his nervous system and immune system and every part of his physical body was able to reflect this new mind, to express this, this, this new mind. And it's as you were talking about reading the book, it's like, I, I, I imagine, you know, can you read something in a foreign language and over time start to understand it? Be an interesting experiment. A tough one to do, right? Because you could start reading Spanish and of course it's, it's the Latin connection that causes you to know that it was this. And, but that, I mean, if, if, there's, if there's no sounds that allow you a way in, I don't know how that would work, right? Like if you just gave me 
Mandarin or Cantonese text, where, where would I, where would I start? I mean, it, it, it would, I would be an entirely different experience neurologically. And there's, there's, a, there's a great book called The Geography of Thought that looks at how we think differently fundamentally as humans based upon an east-west split that sounds like a sort of convenient shorthand, but actually has solid um, categorical distinctions. And there's all these wonderful experiments you can do with a person born in America living in Hong Kong or a person born in Hong Kong now living in mainland China or a person born in mainland China now living in Los Angeles. And you can see, do all these very different clever experiments to see what comes first. Does the, does the culture affect the thinking or does the thinking affect the culture? And what Nesbitt would argue very successfully in this book is that we think fundamentally differently. And as, as Westerners, we would be more inclined to think about separation, about the individual, about the different components of a scene. And, and an Easterner, um, someone who grew up in a uh, Oriental culture in China or Japan or, or Korea, will more likely think in terms of the whole, the, the, whole, the whole scene rather than different components of, of the scene. And we, and we see that, that um, and my, my friends in, uh, in China are, are far more inclined to think about the family and the state or the community first and foremost, whereas my friends in America are more inclined to think about me, about their rights. Um, so, you know, it, it is rather beautiful perhaps to conceive of the human as having these imaginal selves, that we have this evolutionary potential or capacity. And what I know from my own physiology, from my own system, my own very limited experience of life over 42 years, is just how functional and, and happy and, and peaceful and, and, and contributing to others this body can be. Having previously been very dysfunctional, you know, so, so, so I'd, I've experienced depression, I've experienced um, addiction, um, I've experienced you know, a major illness that could by itself end, end this life. And hopefully at one point I'll be able to soon say that's completely resolved and there's no illness. And we certainly know that that's possible, that bodies go from being ill to being healthy, sometimes without any explanation, any understanding as to why. So the, the mystery of, of, of healing. Um, yeah. Which I, for me gives great great hope for humanity. Um, it, it, it does seem that there is a power to this 
truth to this imagining. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, maybe that's why why we're here at such a time of such great dysfunctionality collectively is to um, be able to point to functionality and and what it looks like to create the the physiological transformation into higher functionality. We could say that's what's happening with meditation becoming so globally popular and plant spirit medicines becoming uh, done with greater frequency and in depth and wisdom. The the first book you wrote, uh, can you speak a little bit about, about that? Um, I know it's, it, it's, it's difficult to encapsulate uh, <laughs> an, an entire book, but maybe what, what was the impetus to write that and, and, and kind of the, the, the message you were, you were you were looking to to have people receive from that so the impetus i wanted to write a book you know like 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 many people i had wanted to write a book and had intended to write a book and had started to write novels and had started to write uh an encyclopedia of truth you know, i was interviewing Amit Goswami and ken wilbur and peter russell and all sorts of great uh, great minds and um, then this diagnosis happened and I, I was struck by how um, there was a total absence of stress or, or, or suffering and in looking around the place humans um, seem to suffer um, life a lot uh, even when there's nothing happening um you people experience depression or, or anxiety or um dissatisfaction or uh, um and so it just struck me as interesting that there was this experience of, of peace and, and, and contentment and um and a sense of opportunity and i just thought that that was pretty pretty helpful um there was something in how I was perceiving reality that was that was useful, um, that was helpful, um, and blessed with a brain tumor had a really nice ring to it, um, a little bit provocative, a little bit cheeky, a um, little bit playing with words as well. It blessed. That's usually a religious term. So my atheistic English friends suggested that would ensure it didn't have any commercial success in the UK when maybe they were right. Um, and the book is designed to actually take people on a journey of a wake-up call without the inconvenience of having one. So at the end of each chapter, the first half is the seven gifts. It's like how I was blessed with a brain and how, how it was a gift, how it gave me so much in so many different ways. And the second half is the invitations, kind of like how to uh, future-proof yourself to, to, to not suffer life, to, um, to work through our adversity and our difficulty 
uh, our pain, our suffering as 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 skillfully and as elegantly as we as we can, um, and and to grow and evolve from that suffering and from that difficulty. Uh, and then so each chapter will end with exercises or um, questions designed to facilitate insight or embodiment of that insight. So in, including things like, uh, you know, who do you love? Call them and tell them uh, or, or text them now and tell them. Um, you know, who do you know in your community who is uh, lonely? You know, is there an elderly person that you know that would probably appreciate you knocking on their door and saying, "G'day, you know, can I, can I help?" Um, you know, we say family is important to us. For example, are we living that? You know, I might say well, my family is so important to me, and that's why I work eighty hours a week. And don't see them most of the time. There could be profound truth in that, right? It could be like that's, that's what's happening, but it might also be something else there that I'm missing. I say my family is important, but actually my work is more important. Or I say being happy is important, but I um, spend all my time drinking alcohol or um, uh, watching pornography or things that don't deliver any sort of lasting happiness or, um, or contentment. So where, where am I out of alignment? Uh, so yeah, the book attempts to take people on that, on, on that journey. I think, I think it does it fairly well uh, so far as a book can do that. People report pretty profound experiences reading it. Um, it it's, it's a pretty rough and ready book. I, I, I project managed it myself. I had some great talented editors working on it, but I, my, sec, my second book was prepared produced by a professional publishing company and I think it's evident that that's happened it, it's a little bit more polished um, um, it's got a horrible cover because the publishing company gets to choose that rather than me um, yeah and so I, I hope it will help people experience more transformation and, 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 and peace um, and that sort of impetus of a wake-up call. Um, but as I say, through just through reading the book. And that, Cancer is pretty inconvenient, so it's nice to avoid. <laughs> that second book, can you can you speak about that? The the gratitude prescription is an attempt to really distill the the for me, gratitude is up there with water and sleep and, 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 and movement as being so essential to our well-being and also necessary. Um, you know, so if we, if we don't move, if we stop moving, we start to experience muscular entropy, right? We, we start to die in our capacity. We, if we don't use it, we lose it. So 
we really do need to exercise. And of course, this is a modern concept because we don't get enough exercise naturally just by being out and about and harvesting the crops or searching for the food or whatever. Um, It's kind of the same for me with gratitude. It's, It's... Yes, it's half full and yes, it's half empty. So how about training a brain to see the half full reality, uh, to balance out the negativity bias of it's it's half empty. Um, And it's also one of the most well-researched sort of spiritual practices or, or journaling practices. And has some of the most striking benefits to us in our physiology, in our uh, psychology, in our sociological function, how we show up as citizens or as community members and so on. Um, So as the name would suggest, the prescription, I I see it as a cure for illness as well. And for me, gratitude was um, along with exercise, uh, and changing my diet, the most effective resolution for depression. Um, so my my cure for depression ultimately was to write out what I'm grateful for and, and to write out what's good about me. So I, I would literally create my world and create myself through uh, a journaling process Um each each morning and each night, and I, I know that, that created a a more grateful brain, a more um, open nervous system. Um, yeah, so the gratitude prescription is designed to give people a chance to you know, really dive in to gratitude as a practice and to bring that into their um, into 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 their, into their life. Like, the online course of the same name that gives a deeper dive into all of those experiments and practices um, that can help gratitude seep into not just an individual's life, but a, a family's life as well, you know, into our relationships with our parents and our children. And um, yeah. And again, it's got all of the exercises and questions to hopefully create a sort of process of transformation as one reads through the book. Um, So it's not just conceptual knowledge or ideas, but it actually creates the direct experience of uh, a grateful heart and um, um, softening into our human experience. It's interesting because uh, often working in, in, in ceremonies, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times, but there's there's two words and, and they almost inevitably go together. And, and usually at the end when someone is sharing and when they say those two words, I have this very deep, like felt sense, this very deep knowing that the medicine and they themselves have come together and, and, and it's worked in a way. And, and those two words are gratitude and humility. And when someone expresses that, there's just, I mean, you can see it on them. There's this, there's this, there's this peace. There's this, this, 
this joy, not in some, you know, ostentatious way. There's just this very deep felt sense. And it, it was interesting because it also reminded me uh, when I was younger, I, I was uh, seeing this girl and uh, I, I think I was, I just got back from kind of traveling around the world for two years, also in this search of all of these things. And she was very fascinated by that. And, and, and she, she turned to me and, <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, that's amazing. I think I can find all of that in my garden. <laughs> and I was like, you're probably correct. <laughs> and, the, but, but kind of this idea that, you know, there, there's all of this wisdom where we are. And, and, and then that reminded me of, uh, I was sitting one day with my grandmother and she's, she's 94 now. And this was a, a few years ago. And she, she was saying, you know, Jason, I, uh, every day when I wake up, the, the, the first thing I do is that I just kind of, I lay there for a minute and I, I just look around the room and I just find one thing that I can be grateful for. And I focus on that. And that's how I start my day. And I was also thinking like, in a way, like, man, I've, I've been traveling the world for all of this wisdom and like, <laughs> here it is right here with my grandmother. <laughs> uh, but that idea, and, and, you know, like, there's something also, I think, in our culture, which we, we, we very much have this reverence for youth and, and, and people who speak a lot. And, and, and I think we've gotten very far removed from that very tangible wisdom. Like, here's a woman who's 94 years old, like something she's been doing is right. Mm. You know, like, she's had hardships, you know, it's, it's not that she's free of trauma, she's had the easiest life. And here's this thing of what she's saying, like how she starts her day. And, that, you know, even, even in her, like when I was younger, like I, I, there was times where I, I saw anger, I saw jealousy, I saw, you know, these heavier emotions. But, but now I look at her today and there's just this, this like sense of contentment, this sense of peace, of like I've lived a good life, like things are good, you know, and there's this joy. And, but this idea, you know, of going back to gratitude, like that's how she starts her day. And, and going back to the plant work, it, for me, when I see that in someone, like there's this very deep sense of knowing that this person is connected. So why do you, you know, you're, you're saying like, <clears throat> obviously this is such a powerful thing that there, there's even science now behind it showing, why do you think that's so powerful? And why do you think like gratitude of all things is such an important practice to, to do? And because it's also interesting because you said for you and your journey, it was this part of this remedy for, for your depression. And, and I think depression is something that, that so many people are dealing with right now. It, it, it I don't know if pandemic is the right word, but it's, it's global and not just in the West, but all over the place. And it's something that seemingly, you know, as you were saying, like the more we, we do, or the more we try and know or conquer, there's also this sense of like this, this creeping depression, which is coming into people. And it's something, you know, obviously it's somewhat skewed in the work I do because people are, are, are at a point where they're, they're having to deal with this, but it just seems like something that's very, very prevalent all over the world right now. So why is that, that one thing 
which seemingly seems very simple. And, and I think when a lot of people hear that, they're like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. But there's not, again, that like that inherent embodying it. There's not that practice of it. So why is that so important? And then also, uh, are, are there maybe some simple tools that people can do to, to really embody that? Mm. Yeah, so for me, gratitude and humility are, are two fundamental truths. We were talking, we are talking about truth. And I recall writing a an essay in my late teens um, and it was titled why I will be humble one day and essentially it recognized that I was arrogant and opinionated and um, self-righteous at times and, and 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 yet my ignorance is vast you know if, if I know anything then it's clear that what I don't know is far more vast and significant so why would i possibly the only true position is is one of of humility um and you know i, I was sort of hopeful that i would become more humble as life unfolded and, and life in its wisdom um and be careful be careful what you wish for right um but certainly I, I found depression and addiction and, and brain, brain tumor to be humbling experiences. Um, and you know, the, the, the brain tumor diagnosis was like, oh, you, you got me sort of thing. Um, it was far from, uh, um, far from poor me or anything like that. It was, uh, uh, okay. Um, and gratitude similarly yeah. everything's a gift everything's given this, this body this, this breath this, this awareness this world um, it, it, it's all a gift And so to activate that thankfulness for this experience, for, for everything, it is an, is an aligning with truth. As John, um, uh, not John, um, William Blake uh, stated that gratitude is heaven itself. So he is equating the unitive state of consciousness um, or God realization with gratitude as being a, a means into that. I, I would say the same, that, that, that gratitude is a consequence of non-dual awareness and it's also a cause potentially of a moment of non-dual awareness as well so it can be useful in this in, in, in this way um, the practices I, I I love to ask my partner as we're going to sleep yeah, what, what what 
What was the best things that happened today? What did you enjoy most about today? And of course, your your grandmother offered a great one to, to start the day in a similar way. Like, what, what am I grateful for right now? And that could be, what am I grateful for about what's happening today? Um, or it could just be, you know, grateful to have a warm bed or I'm grateful to see the trees as I as I wake up. There is a, a very nice embodiment practice, which is to, you know, to open the arms as we're doing this. So we're, we're creating this sort of physiological anchoring and we're creating a very literal opening of the subtle energy system and the, um, the blood flow as well. So it's a very powerful physiological and psychological intervention to open our chest to open our arms it's, it's the christ pose rather rather interestingly as well um which is the pose that i ran out into the lagoon and took after vitamin dmt so it does seem there's something in these medicines that brings us some of these wisdoms um so that can be a beautiful one to jump out of bed and to open the arms and and to feel whatever there is to feel today right that, and that might be a delightful expansive expansiveness or a joy or it might be a tightness or a heaviness who, who knows but to em- embrace whatever it is each, each morning um yeah so journaling morning and evening is is the gold standard writing out in the present tense i am grateful for I am experiencing gratitude for, I'm feeling grateful for, because when we engage our motor function circuits of the brain, so when we're utilizing our body, our writing, our um, spatial awareness as well, we're creating a more full neurological engagement. So whilst singing or speaking is great, it's um, the research indicates that if, if we're writing that down, it's actually more engaging it's a more meaningful and more fully embodied experience than if we're just thinking or, or, or speaking so topping and tailing the day writing three things in the present tense uh is is, is the gold standard and, and quite easy you know like two minutes in the morning two minutes in the evening it can be literally we give ourselves seven minutes in the morning seven minutes at night to complete our gratitude, stretching, and meditation practice. Could be we just take, you know, might be we need to do a bit of practice to get to a point where two minutes is enough in stretching to be meaningful for the body. But um, yeah, that, that, when we've got that familiarity with our body and how our system works, we know what's going to be the high leverage stuff what's going to be most beneficial and for for, for me yeah gratitude's up there with meditation uh drinking plenty of uh clean clear water and uh and and, and stretching the the body and experiencing connection you know whether that's here now with you in this exchange or or with my partner or with my family or, or with the trees or um yeah or, or, or with with presence with 
um, with, with God, we might say. So all of these, all of these different practices you've done, because uh, you've had a like a deep curiosity in these different spiritual practices, uh, Zen Buddhism and, and drinking plants and uh, vipassana. Do you have a sense, because you mentioned a few times this idea of unity, and so do you have a sense of 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 like the union between all of these, like what they're, what they're getting at, what they're, because I think in a way for these practices to have survived for so long, I mean, things are so fleeting. Uh, I remember uh, watching the the Oscars uh, a number of years ago, and I had this deep reverence for Marlon Brando, because for me, he was like, he was the guy who changed acting, like, there was, there was like Marlon Brando or there was acting pre Marlon Brando and there was acting post Marlon Brando. Like you, you watch him in a streetcar named desire and it's just like, he pops off the screen and everyone else seems like they're acting. It seems very phony in a way. And it, you know, he was the inspiration of all of these other people who really revolutionized acting, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Harvey Keitel. And, you know, these guys, like for them, Marlon Brando was the greatest. And I remember watching the Oscars the year he died and they do this like in memoriam thing. And, and uh, you know, so they were, they were listing all the people who died. And then the last one was Marlon Brando. And I was thinking, you know, it was going to be this 15 minute thing where they, they give him all this respect and, it was basically like five seconds, Marlon Brando, born in this year, died in this year. And then, and then you know, everyone starts clapping and then the award show goes on. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, my God, like, like that was the guy. And, and that, that's it. Like he, he's, he's done now, you know, but just in that sense of like the, the fleeting nature of everything. And yet these practices have survived the test of time which I think very few things which have a deep meaning are able to bypass that fleeting nature. Like there's something in them that humans have found. They've found a deep truth or a deep wisdom and they've decided to, to pass these things on. So I know this is a big question, but do you, do you, do you see the commonality and, and, and why they're important and, and what they're potentially pointing towards? So, so people have done a very good job of demonstrating the universality and the commonality of various methods of transformation and tools of spiritual inquiry. Um, Aldous Huxley wrote the perennial philosophy and there's a sort of two schools. One says that what is being reported is the same. So you know, I might call it moksha, he might call it nevakalpi samadhi, um, they may call it a kensho, uh, they may call it a satori, but it, it's the same terrain that's being described. They have different maps, but it's the same terrain that's being described. Um, others would argue, no, 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 no. Nervakabi Samadhi is completely different from Satori. You know, it's it's, a, it's a, an objectively different ontology. 
uh, arrived at through a different process of training. Um, and yeah, Ken Wilber's obviously done a great job with integral theory or providing a, a meta theory through which all these different theories emerge. Well, I think he's done a great, great job. Um, so I think there's, there's clearly commonality and universality, it seems to me. Um, it, it, it seems that we enjoy, there's, there's a value in peace. There's, 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 a, there's a quality in to be, to be in a good feeling body. Um, and that value is not just for me, but it's for the society, for the community as well. Um, so if I'm if I'm able to experience uh, anger or frustration or irritation without acting it out, then that, that's that's really good for my for my family or, or for my culture. Uh, for my for my community, um, if I if I can have a profound insight, um, if I if I if I can be right, but not have to be right, um, uh, something I've learned over the years. My friend pointed out to me. He said, "Will you know, you your need to be right causes other people pain," and. Um, yeah, so I, I hopefully have, have, have stopped stopped that. That it's usually um, far more important to be to be kind um, than, than than right. Um, so yeah, the art of not being right, even when you're right, is is one that I I practice and the art of returning love, returning non-love with love is, is the other thing that I practice. And these, these, these things are useful. These, these capacities are useful. Um, so they, they do, in, in my view, have a universality and... Um, Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'm struck by the fact that at this time on planet Earth, with all the darkness and the dysfunction and you know, the extent to which we are harming the life systems that we depend upon and the extent to which we are um, harming ourselves through our healthcare and, um, and so on and so on. Um, we are also living in a time where we have access to all of these traditions and wisdoms and technologies very often in, in our pocket. You know, Dog Chen, for example, did not used to be articulated to anyone until a very significant process and series of initiations had occurred. Um, 
you know, some just for very good practical reasons, ensure that person's nervous system can can take this, that person's psychology can can hold this. Um, and also because there's a certain sort of preparatory process that you know, each builds and allows us to go into the next. We we practice uh you know single-mindedness, uh concentration practice that then allows us to practice diffused awareness. You can't really do one without the other. Now, I think, and I'm not speaking from experience, I'm pretty sure you can probably search Dog Chen, probably go into someone's Dog Chen masterclass and probably have some authentic Dog Chen teacher you know, give you the essence of Dog Chen in an American context for 197 bucks. Um, we, we can offer conjecture as to how authentic or, or how deep that is. And, but but even the fact that you can surface skim that and, and then go and read Rumi and then go and practice a fully integrated um, Western psychology, Zen Buddhism, Buddhism within many different traditions. And, and then maybe if still not satisfied, head down to the Temple of the Way of Life. Um, where we might meet all manner of cultures merging and traditions. And I think you know, there's another great example of the Temple of the Way of Light, where you know, you've got this ex extraordinary, rich indigenous practice, and you've got this attempt to bring integration in and, and, and Western psychology in and, and neuroscience and, and community and all these different components. Um, so it truly is an extraordinary time to be alive and it does seem to be set up in the favor of humanity um, evolving into into higher and more functional forms. Um, and I think happily that will happen regardless of how moronic and limited the people that end up leading our corporations and governments are. I, I think that there is power evolutionary impulse to that to that truth that um, yeah will will we'll, we'll be the dominant force but of course that may include you know huge suffering and and, and death in in the, in the billions who, who, who knows like what who, who knows what a quantum leap for human consciousness will will, will, will look like Maybe it's already happened. Maybe we're now on a trajectory with the internet and all these technologies for personal awakening and well-being. Um, particularly when we consider that we're existing within a unified field of consciousness. Each each one of us that uh, works through our trauma, that works through our confusion and, and comes to the clarity of our of our the purity of our own consciousness. That's that's a that's a vibration that's offered out into the whole. 
we know from the holographic principles that we are um, we, we can be of the whole and containing the whole at the same time um, so yeah So I, I just I just talked myself into a very optimistic um, human future, um, which isn't one that's always conscious in my. You know, I I I, I see a lot of um, un unconsciousness and, and 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 so on in um, human culture, but um, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm at heart an optimist and and. Uh, of course, if, if we accept our role as um, creative principles within consciousness, within the world of uh, form, then what we imagine and what we believe and feel and think is going to happen is um, a bit of a vote for that happening. Well, that seems like a, a pretty good way to begin to close this down, my friend. <laughs> sure. I think we're, uh, we're over three hours. I, I had no doubt it would uh, reach wow. that. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit maybe um, uh, about the work you do and, and the podcast and, and seminars mm. and just kind of where, where you're at in life right now and, and what you're doing? Yeah, so I... Um... I haven't been doing much face-to-face -face stuff like, like most people for obvious reasons. That's been restricted. But um, I am working with a group of extraordinary people out here creating uh, Flow Hub. And we offer Flow Consciousness and Flow Discovery retreats out in Gippsland. So this is for people that are located in, in Australia. We're about an hour and a half out of Melbourne. Um, and I'm working as a coach as well so i take on i'm currently taking on one-on-one uh, -on -one clients so i i work as a transformational coach so i work with people one-on-one -on -one. um that's something i enjoy immensely and gain a lot of meaning from um and yeah you know what, do I, what, what does the marketing tell me i should say here i I help cultural creators turn their biggest pain into purpose and possibility or something like that. Um, my website's willpie.com and there's lots of things that people say about me on there that are a bit more um, authentic. Uh, and, and I'm thinking about writing a, a, another book called The Truth, actually. That's, that's, that's the working title. Um, since the recurrence, the subtitle has been um, What Curing Brain Cancer Taught Me About Life, Love, and Death, or something like that. So I'm imagining a place where I'm writing about an event in the past that is um, yeah, the resolution of my, of my brain's um, well-being. Um, yeah, and I'm just about to start, although I've been saying this for a while, a group coaching community called Living Impeccably. I ran it for a couple of years and it was glorious. And I'm 
thinking about relaunching that now. So um, yeah, if anyone's interested in uh, the possibility of, of working with me one-on-one or in the group coaching capacity, they can reach me at will at willpie.com. Um, the podcast, I haven't done the episodes for a little while. Um, yeah, one, once I'd had the episode with you, Jason, it was just where to, where to go from there, you know. It was just, there was no, it would all be downhill. So, um, so I actually haven't, I'm not sure if I've done episodes since you. Must have done it if it was a year ago. Um, but yeah, that's called The Truth Lover. And um, Empowering Enlightened Humanity is the, um, the, the subtitle. And there's lots of extraordinary people on there, including yourself, of course. Um, you know, Lisa Rankin and um, yeah, too many beautiful names to to mention. But um, people can find that on uh, the usual places. And loveandtruthparty.org, loveandtruthparty.org is uh, an attempt to create a, a self-organizing, self-replicating um, system of awakening and revolution um, connecting people with their own spiritual power, their own truth and um, inviting them to act in the world from that place of clarity and, 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 and peace, um, bringing a spirit of play into um, our personal and, and collective uh, unfolding. I, I would say along with gratitude and humility, uh, I think a sense of humor uh, is another uh, divine quality um, that if we have lost, if we, if we haven't got gratitude or if we haven't got humility or we haven't got um, a sense of humor, then um, this, this, this life is going to be pretty challenging. Well, beautiful, my friend. Is, is there anything uh, that's on your mind we didn't touch on that you'd, you'd, you'd like to talk about? I, I can say pretty confidently, no. I think we were uh, pretty, <laughs> Pretty, pretty thorough. We, we, we covered a huge number of things. So, um, yeah, thank you for having me on the on your show. It's a pleasure chatting with you as always. So I've really enjoyed the opportunities to, to connect with you and catch up. And um, hopefully it's useful for your viewers and listeners. And um, thank you for listening or, or watching. And, um, yeah, be, be grateful. Be humble and keep your sense of humor. <laughs> I forgot one one final question, uh, kind of mm. wrapping this to the beginning. Uh, did you fulfill your bucket list? <laughs> <laughs> I have swum with dolphins. <laughs> I have worked with ayahuasca. And if there's a, a, a multi-ethnic group of women listening who just think <laughs> that this, they, they could really serve... Yeah, help help this guy fulfill his bucket list and by all means um <laughs> that that uh happily there are great dreams and uh bold desires yet to be fulfilled so may, maybe i'm not dead yet <laughs> yeah that seems like uh may, maybe one of these things that, that that's still left for you to to live for so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah well, great, my friend. It's it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know, you you very much have a have a beautiful mind, and and I think uh, I think and hope a, a lot of people will will see that and and get a lot from this. And there's there's just a lot of gems, and um, 
you know, I, I hope people, if, if they're interested, reach out to you because I think you have a lot to, to offer and share. And very much as you were saying, I, you know, I think this, uh, this kind of evolution of humanity in, involves people like yourselves, like really speaking from a place of, of knowledge and truth. And it's, it's vital, especially in these times where it seems like this very strange time where there's this there's this resistance in, in a way to to hearing things and you know sometimes the the truth and knowledge can be i don't want to say hurtful but but in a way it can i don't think truth is ever hurtful only to honest yeah but I think when, when we have barriers up that are very strong, that often come from that place of a lack of humility, a lack of gratitude, it, it can very much hit those like a wall. And I think it's, it's just, it's so important that, that, that people do speak, you know, their truth and, 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 and that truth with a capital T too. And because ultimately all of that is, is for the good. It's, it's for the individual good. It's for the collective good. It's, it's for the, the higher good. So I thank you, brother. I thank you for continuing to do that. And, and I wish you. you all the best. Thank and, uh, and one of these days, uh, we'll, we'll have to do it again. Cause I, I, I feel there's, there's easily another three that. hours we could go on for. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, brother. It's been a real joy and a pleasure Yeah, to the universe within. Yeah, absolutely, my friend. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jason. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my friend, Will. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with him. I, I always enjoy talking with him. I, uh, it looks like we went over three hours, which uh, wasn't surprising to me at all. Um, and I, I think we can probably do another three at some point. So hopefully uh, Will will be back on to, to talk about more. Um, as always, uh, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Um, Patreon is a, is a really great option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up, um, and even small contributions make a, a really big difference. Um, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Uh, there's also the ability to directly donate via PayPal. And, um, if you're not able to do that, simply going on the YouTube channel, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help with the algorithms. And then with the audio version going on Apple podcasts, subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review. That's a really big help. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for the support. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you all on the next one.